94.7 KTWV HD3 Los Angeles. In session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Talakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I talk about the book from this past week, the book of the week for this week is Possessed by Bruce Hood. Possessed, why we want more than we need. Um, sounds like an interesting book with a shopping bag on the title, uh, on the cover. So I'm sure looking at why is it that we seem we keep wanting or feel like we need things really, but we don't. So looking forward to reading that and sharing that with you next Monday. The book of the week from this past week I'll talk about tonight was one that uh, really made me think a lot, which is probably because it's a book about how we think. Uh, That book is Mind in Motion by Barbara Tversky, Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought. Um, Barbara Tversky is a psychologist and a professor at Stanford University, and her husband was Amos Tversky, who um, worked a lot with Daniel Kahneman. So um, he, but he sadly passed away, I think, in the 90s, but did some very influential work with Daniel Kahneman. Uh, and here she wrote a very thought-provoking and interesting book that it's one of those books that makes you think a lot and can change the way you think. But also I know it'll keep me thinking because she brought up lots of points in the book that changed or at least challenged some of what I thought I knew about how we think and made me Uh, try to think of it in a different way. It's hard not to use think so much talking about this book that looked at how we think and what is, um, what it means to think and how we do that. To begin with, she didn't define a thought itself, um, which I think is hard to describe or define specifically, but uh, she was talking about the ways that we think. And usually what we always have heard is that we think in words. So... Um, I talk to myself, obviously that's, that's words. I think about something, I think of it in words. I can describe my thoughts because they're in words. Even if I have an image in mind, it's words. And so we have this understanding that words are what thoughts are made of. But in this book, she's saying that maybe it's not words, but it's actually um, how we move in space and movement itself. And in a way, image is also that can be more related to how thought is created or what is the basis of thought rather than words. And reading the book and hearing how she explains it, it does make a lot of sense because 
if we think of other animals, then we might not think they have thoughts in the way that we have thoughts that are abstract, but they do seem to think or have moments of thinking in that moment, or babies can have some type of thoughts or interactions, or a toddler might not be able to use all these words, but we can tell they're thinking about things. They miss mommy or something, and even before they can say that, they can probably express it or show it to us or give us that feeling. And she shared actually an interesting story from uh, scientist Richard Feynman, um, and he this is him sharing a story from when he was a kid that made him realize something about thinking. So this is Richard Feynman, which is quoted in the book. When I was a kid growing up in Far Rockaway, I had a friend named Bernie Walker. We both had labs, quote-unquote, at home, and we would do various experiments. Over time, we were discussing something. We must have been 11 or 12 at the time, and I said, but thinking is nothing but talking to yourself inside. Oh, yeah, Bernie said. Do you know the crazy shape of the crankshaft in a car? Yeah, what of it? Good, now tell me, how did you describe it when you were talking to yourself? So I learned from Bernie that thoughts can be visual as well as verbal. And when I read this, it was really, did a good job of illustrating the point, no pun intended. But when I think of an image, yes, the label might be a word, but the image is a picture or an image. I don't think of the words. I don't think of, I'm looking at Amir here in front of me. And if I had to describe him to you, or if I had to think of him in my mind, I wouldn't think of describing all the features of his face and his body and everything else. I would just see the image of him just like I'm looking at him now. And so although we think of thoughts as just being made out of words, we realize that actually they're not just words. They can be images and many other things. And there's ways we communicate that show that as well. So this was a bit eye-opening for me, or at least a new perspective on thinking, which is why I enjoyed this book, because that's really the main argument of the book, is that it's not just about words that create our thoughts, we might describe all of our thoughts in words, and maybe uh, a lot of our thoughts might be in words now, but it doesn't mean that's the only way we think and the only way we can think. And a lot more is uh, can be shown through things like motion. And this was interesting for me. So right now, as I'm doing the show, I know it's radio, but I use gestures when I talk, even on the radio. And I sometimes would laugh at myself or kind of think it's funny because I know people can't see it, but I see myself doing hand gestures, especially I might get more animated or if I'm explaining something, even right now, I see my hands are moving. And she talks about a lot of research on gestures that although we might think it's just meaningless types of uh, hand movements that we do, or we're, we're taught that if you want to be a good public speaker, you have to use gestures. And actually, I think that's why sometimes people can be mechanical when they you see that they've maybe learned that gesturing is good. So they do it in this uh, you know, inorganic kind of way. It doesn't look very genuine. But really, when we gesture, it is a way of communicating parts of the thought. And so there's research showing that people, when they use gestures, they actually get to communicate or express themselves more easily. And also people listening to them can understand them better when they gesture. And even I think she shared a study where people who are blind will gesture when they talk. So it seems like it's very natural for us to do so. But when we gesture, sometimes we're making different types of points that help communicate to the other person. Uh, not only that, when we're trying to give directions, they found that, of course, gesturing makes sense to be important there. 
when we say turn right, usually we'll turn our fingers to say turn right, go straight, we'll show them in different ways of communicating. But they even found that when someone tries to give directions and they tell them to sit on their hands, so they can't use their hands, they don't do as well. So if someone says, how do you get from your office to the supermarket? Um, they actually have a hard time, harder time doing it when they're sitting on their hands. And actually they found that even in the studies they did, sometimes people couldn't even resist. Their hands would just come up and they would start using their hands to describe uh, the, the directions and how to get there. And they found that they, they do better using their hands. So gestures, although we might think of them as some kind of meaningless or a random type of movements, it seems that they are not. They actually do communicate things. And if you see the ways that people gesture, it does make sense the ways that they're trying to communicate certain things, tell you about certain things. Uh, even when they're telling you at the order of things, they might show it to you in a certain way without you even realizing. But uh, for her, another illustration or example of how our thinking can be spatial. It can be related to space, not just words. Um, there's also interesting research she talked about uh, going back to timelines and the ordering of things. So imagine if I tell you we have a piece of paper and I'm going to put a sticker representing lunch in the middle. And now I want you to put a sticker for breakfast and a sticker for dinner on that same piece of paper. What most people will do is they'll put breakfast to the left of um, lunch and then dinner to the right. Even though it's funny that I was going to say just now, they put breakfast before because to me that left is so automatically before when we're trying to make a timeline um, and they put the dinner to the right, which is after. Uh, but this is what almost everyone does. Even young kids, most of them would do this when it came to breakfast, lunch and dinner. Even though this seems so obvious, you don't really have to do that. You can put them top to bottom. Um, you could have done it the other way around. You could have just put them on top of each other. But it seems that people tend to just understand this, that time seems to flow this way. Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, I'm, I, was, I learned Farsi very, not minimally, when I was younger as far as reading and writing goes. And even still speaking can be a challenge for me at times. But really, I'm, I'm an English speaker, which is a left-to-right language. But what they find is that in languages that go right to left, they tend to make their timelines go the other way. So when they do this task of putting breakfast, lunch, and dinner in order, they'll put breakfast to the right and dinner to the left. And it's interesting, even it takes me longer to think about that because it seems wrong to me. But of course, it's because of what I'm used to. So it's interesting that when people even think of time, we think of it as going forward and going forward in a way when you're reading goes from left to right. So we think of the left as the beginning and you go forward, that's going right and going forward in time. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, or even when we think about going forward in time, we think of the future as ahead of us if you're thinking in a visual type of way. Where we tell people future is ahead of you. And that's what we think of because that's the orientation we're going in. But she talks about one language, and there might be more, but there's one that they know of where actually they think of the future as behind you, not because of time being behind you, but actually because the future is unknown, you can't see it. So it's behind you, but the past you can see, so that's in front of you. And I thought that was interesting. And um, this is another example of how we 
oftentimes don't recognize how much language can also affect our thought. It can shape the ways we think about things and, and different perspectives, but we tend to think of it as just a way of describing our thought, but actually can affect how we think about things as well. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, she also talks about how things like diagrams can be so helpful at times in understanding things. Even some of the concepts she's talked about in the book, I'd be reading a page and hoping there was an illustration or diagram on the next page. So words are wonderful, of course. So this book is not saying that words are bad, but it's saying that there is so much that we get from the visual and that thinking is not just words. And that's why sometimes the visual can help us understand something better than words can. If we give someone directions on how to make something, words can be very helpful, but a very simple diagram might do much better than the words would do and in less space because it is something that involves movement and putting things together. And so usually when you see an instruction manual for, let's say, putting together furniture or something, she talks about in the book, the diagrams are much more helpful than the words or the words alone would not be enough. And so the diagram sometimes without words, but it's showing arrows and things to delineate or to uh, describe the actions can be very helpful. So this also makes sense in line with her argument about how our thinking is much more spatial than we tend to think of it, is that these images can help us so much because we think in this way. Um, or even she talks about in language how um, we think about ideas as something we act on. We act on language, uh, on the ideas. So we tore up someone's argument. Uh, we poked holes in their argument. Those are both action words. Or we turn the idea on its head. And so uh, she shared so many of these examples throughout the book of ways that we use motion and movement and space in talking about um, ideas. And it's so common that we don't even realize that we're doing it. We take them for granted. And sometimes she would say one of them and then later a few sentences down, talk about, did you notice how I use this word? For example, that happened a few times throughout the book. And it was interesting that these phrases that we use that talk about ideas in ways that are actually actions, things that we act upon, um, were something we took for granted. And so for her, this was a way of showing that we think in a spatial way. And so even when we think with ideas, at times we're moving them around in our head. We actually are doing movement and actions on them. It's not just a figure of speech. It's really something that we tend to feel and experience. So this book was really fascinating in uh, opening my eyes to a new way to think about thinking, to recognize that it's not just about words, that action and space and our movement even can be a big part of understanding how we think, that it's not just about the words, but that words, uh, to me, it's not that it's just maybe about action, but that uh, as she puts it, it might be the basis of the way we think is um, action and space and movement. That's why the title of the book is Mind in Motion. Um, and throughout the book, she shares a lot of research that can help illustrate her point. So at times it was a bit technical, the book, it gets into some research, but overall, I think you get the take-home messages throughout the book about the ways that we think and how words are not enough to explain the ways that we think. And so I really enjoyed um, reading this book. And as I mentioned, it's one of those books that to use the uh, language I was talking about, it really moved some of my thinking around. Um, again, so it's like we talk, think about ideas in a movement type of a way, but it really did 
lead to shifts and ideas and movements and ideas and turning things around that really will be um, affecting the way I think about things going forward. And so it's nice to read a book like that, that in a way shakes things up. And again, see, all these words have to do with movement, but shakes things up in the way that you think about things, but then can lead to new insights. So I was really grateful to uh, Barbara Tversky for writing this book, and I would recommend it to anyone. It did just come out this year, so it's newer as well. So a lot of the research in there, I think, is new. Of course, draws on research from old as well. But that was Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought by Barbara Tversky. And the book of the week for this week is Possessed, Why We Want More Than We Need by Bruce Hood. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the first segment, I talked about the book Mind in Motion by Barbara Tversky. And in that book, she talks about how, although we tend to think that <laughs> it's so hard to talk about these these topics without saying think and uh, these types of words, but that we tend to think that our thoughts are made from words and that's the only way that we can think about things. But really, we, she talks about the uh, motion and our spatial relationships and how that they might be the basis of thought. And just looking at that part of words not being the only way we think made me think about a few other related concepts that I wanted to talk about. So when we talk about connection between two people or even communication, I do think that, especially if we're talking about romantic relationships, most couples don't talk enough. There are the few that maybe talk too much, but I think that's much less common. And so in general, people need to have more conversations more often in more ways with their partners rather than less. Uh, and that's very important. And by com those conversations, that's verbal. But also we must not forget that a lot of communication can be done non-verbally as well, or we can connect and communicate in other ways that are not just verbal. They could be um, spending time together. Of course, sex is something that comes to mind that could be a nonverbal way of connecting and communicating, but that's not the only one. Spending time together is important. Doing activities together, creating things together, all sorts of things can be other ways that we connect and communicate with each other. So it's important to keep that in mind that it's not just about words or even silences can be so meaningful. Um, there is that exercise of staring into your partner's eyes and not saying anything, just sharing that intimacy together in silence, looking into each other's eyes. And for many people, this is difficult uh, because that intimacy is uncomfortable. It could be a personal thing that they just have a hard time with that type and level of intimacy. Um, but it could also be that they don't feel so safe or good with their partner, that there's something, something is missing in that connection. So as much as it's so important to be able to talk to your partner for hours and hours and hours and hours and not run out of things to say and not get bored and, and enjoy that process, you also want to have that ability to be able to say nothing to each other. I kind of left the silence longer there to enjoy and uh, embrace the silence together as well, that you don't have to say something. 
Uh, when we think about it, a lot of times when people do fill a silence, it's not because they always have something to say. It's because we tend to get a little bit anxious and uncomfortable with silences. And this is actually something that comes up in therapy. And I know in my own experience as a therapist, uh, early on, it was hard for me to tolerate silences. And so I felt this need to fill the space with the next question or next, next topic to explore with the client uh, because I probably didn't feel so confident as my with myself as a therapist. I thought it would show that I didn't know what I was doing and I had to say something. But for various reasons, I wasn't comfortable with the silence myself, but it's something that I've grown to become more comfortable with. And one, you realize that sometimes in those silence, you share a moment with the client, but also two, the silence can give them space to reflect and see what comes up and then express that rather than thinking that you have to keep the train of the conversation going constantly back and forth. It's okay to give them a moment's pause to just reflect and connect and then express something. So even with our partners where, again, we hopefully don't run out of things to say. And if we're in silence, it's not because we're bored of each other. We don't want to be with each other. We can actually share a moment with each other or moments with each other, just looking into each other's eyes. And what can make it hard for some people or they think, well, we started talking or we started laughing or even another excuse people use or a way out of doing it is that they'll, they'll start to kiss or touch and they'll think, no, it's because we're so passionate and we're so in love and we're so attracted to each other that we can't just look at each other and not touch each other. But that to me is a cop-out. It's not actually that you're so attracted to each other that you can't keep looking at each other. It's that you can't tolerate just looking at each other. It's that you can't handle it and handle that type of intimacy. So you fool yourself into thinking that this other intimacy of just touching, it shows that you are even closer to each other. And really you're not that close because you can't tolerate not having that touching and just being uh, together and in a cliche way, like your hearts are touching or just letting yourselves be intimate in that silence. So it's something important. And I think interesting for couples to try one, to try to get an idea of how they feel uh, with their partner in that way, but also a nice way to connect, uh, to have those few minutes together, just looking at each other. And again, showing that although we think of communication as something that is only done by words, um, it doesn't have to be. Of course, it's great to communicate that way, but there's lots of nonverbal communications that we're constantly doing, but also things we can do to connect in a nonverbal way and to communicate in a nonverbal way. So it's actions, silences, things like that. Um, but also related to this topic that words are not the only way uh, to think, but also to feel, because we have long known and still know that uh, although we think of talk therapy as the main way that therapists therapists help you know people or help their clients, that it's not the only way. And things like art therapy, dance therapy, music therapy can all be very powerful ways to help people heal. And people sometimes think, well, yeah, art therapy or play therapy, um, that's only something that helps kids. But that is definitely not the case. Adults can benefit from these things too. To begin with, when we do things like art therapy, um, what can be helpful is that through art, 
One, we can sometimes get in touch with things that are hard for us to express. Either it's hard for us to get to them or it's hard for us to put them in words. And so this is where this idea of uh, words not being the only way we think or can express things, sometimes we might feel something, but we don't know how to describe it. Or it's not something that's easy to describe in one word or many words, but uh, that's why we say a picture is worth a thousand words. Or if you look at a piece of art, it can bring up all sorts of feelings that might even be hard to describe, much more than if you just try to describe those words or if someone told you those words. And so through art, people at times can express things that they have a hard time accessing or describing. But also we know that when people do things like art, very often their, um, if you want to call it super ego or the way that they're going to judge themselves or the way they're afraid to get judged, those types of things might not be in the way as much. So it might be a more direct way to get to their unconscious or to their feelings because when you're telling them or asking them, how do you feel? How do you think about this? They're very aware of their answers, but through art, we oftentimes don't have that. And so that's why people can sometimes feel when they're dancing, like they're just letting go. There is this letting go feeling. And even dance can be very healing for a lot of people just to express themselves in that way. Because yes, uh, Talking can be so helpful and actually even labeling our emotions can be very helpful. This is one reason why therapy, although you might think, well, you're just talking and talking can be very healing. I don't want to minimize that, but it's not the only way to express and to heal. But um, the talking can be very important, but we also know that we can express ourselves in other ways also. We can express what we're feeling, what we're going through in ways that are not verbal in, and that can be very helpful for people to express themselves to one another and even to get in touch with their own feelings. And so uh, reading this book brought to mind this concept that we can express ourselves in so many ways. Also, a lot of times the things we feel could be pre-verbal. If you were a baby, you probably felt things, but you didn't have the, have words even to describe them, but it doesn't mean you didn't feel anything. So you, you might not be able to express those things except through things like art or music or other types of things. And people have been communicating throughout history, uh, even before there was words, we know that we were communicating, or if you look at some animals, they communicate. So we know that there's more there when it comes to communication than just the verbal, and it's important to get in touch with that. And so I do enjoy reading these books every week, and I really did enjoy this book, Mind in Motion by Barbara Tversky, but it's a reminder that words aren't the only way that we learn, words aren't the only way that we express ourselves, and they're not the only important thing. There's much more to how we think, how we feel, how we act than can be put into words. And so I thought that was an interesting concept that came to mind reading this book is that we have to be aware of those things and how we act. And also as a parent, when it comes to how you communicate with your children, being aware of the fact that we know that so much of emotion and feeling is expressed not in what people say only, but through their facial expressions, their body language, the way they respond to things. And so a parent responds to all types of feelings of, let's say, a baby, but the baby never, never verbalizes a word, but you can tell they're sad. You can tell they're happy. Even some parents, especially sometimes moms, can get so attuned to their child, they know that that is a cry 
for food or milk, or that is a cry because they're wet, they wet themselves and need to get changed, or that's a cry because you're just cranky, but they can even hear differences in their crying, which of course can't really be verbalized, but it's something that you can feel, or you maybe can start to get a sense of it, but we see that it can't always be felt. Or sometimes when you're dreaming, I also thought about this when you're thinking of nonverbal thought. So many things get expressed in the dream and you can try to describe them, but it would be so hard to, and you almost always will feel like the words will never be enough to paint that scene in that picture and also how you were feeling in that dream. Because we know sometimes people will say, I saw someone and no, they were in, they were not threatening because I felt good. They can feel something. So there's so much more that goes into what we experience than what we can just put into words. And so dreams was another element that I thought was quite interesting that people think we can only think in thoughts, but when you're dreaming, there's so much going on that isn't verbal, but that you experience and you feel, and that is part of uh, what can make dreams so fascinating. So just some more thoughts that came to mind from Mind in Motion by Barbara Tversky, trying to explore the ways that we think and you can't see me, but I'm doing lots of gesturing as I talk. As I mentioned, we gesture to help ourselves communicate. It can help the listener, but also just in talking, it's easier when we gesture as well. So let's go into our last commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. back. Uh, for the last segment, I wanted to talk about um, a topic that came up this past weekend. So we were on the cruise this past weekend. My father did uh, several seminars and I did a, a couple seminars as well. And then we did a question and answer. And a question came up as um, is very much on most people's minds or a lot of people's minds was social media. And a mom asked the question about social media and teen, her teenage daughter and and all of that. And so it led to this discussion about social media. And of course, it's one of those easy things to talk about that social media is bad and Instagram and Facebook are bad. But as I mentioned when I was responding that all these things, we don't want to just look at them as black and white, good or bad. We have to look at the effect they're having. And like a lot of things, they have some good and some bad qualities. And also very importantly, how we use it in our life can be good or bad, or at times it could be good and bad. And that's what we have to focus on. Am I using something like social media in a positive way, in a good way, or in a negative way? And you might think, well, it's just a negative thing, but it definitely is not only negative. There's lots of ways you can connect people to others, helps people express themselves, um, leads to connection, leads to a way of even entertaining. Entertainment is not bad. Uh, that can be good, but it, unfortunately it has some negative consequences. And one of the biggest ones is that it creates, or I should say, uh, amplifies comparison culture where we look at others and think they're more beautiful than us. They have more money than us. They have a better life than us. They have a better relationship than us. They have a better career than us. All sorts of things like that become unfortunately too easy and really just how we view things when we are in so on social media. It definitely reinforces and amplifies the comparison culture. And another thing that I think is an unfortunate uh, 
side effect or result of social media is that it makes us more superficial. And I mean that in a few ways. One is, of course, it makes us more superficial that we value things like looks and nice cars and things more because those are things we're, we're seeing and being bombarded with and get the most attention. But also it makes us more superficial because it can make the things we go for more superficial and make our relationships more superficial. People look to get the attention of people they don't even know just to get that feeling or that high you get from getting likes and follows. And as I like to say, likes and follows are the drug of the digital age that people go to social media and they post things and experience things on social media to get that little hit, that drug. Even people sometimes will say, I'm feeling down. And so I'll post a picture of myself and wait for the likes and the comments. And that'll make me feel good even if it's momentarily and it is momentarily like a drug and they come back down. So unfortunately, social media has turned into this drug that people turn to, to try to fill a hole. But of course, like all drugs, doesn't actually fill the hole. It just momentarily uh, covers it up, but then it goes away. And again, we're left with that void. So people are seeking things that are superficial rather than things that are deeper. And one way we see this very strongly is in relationships. People post pictures of their relationships. They post um, pictures of gifts they get from their boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives. And they do a lot of trying to show off in their relationships. Or people post a picture or a video and they say couples goals or relationship goals, meaning this is what I hope to have in a relationship or we should all strive to have. But what I think is unfortunate is first, anything or really if we want to look at the makings of a good and healthy and strong relationship, they are not things that can be displayed in one picture or in one video. Maybe very rarely there can be something that displays that, but usually it's not going to be much. People can look cute. They can look maybe... Uh, romantic and where it is and the lighting and you know maybe they're in front of the Eiffel Tower or they're in front of a beautiful sunset or whatever it is it can look romantic and nice and look maybe like a storybook but it just stops at the surface just like the image does you just look at that image and it doesn't mean much about what a good relationship is it just tells us what a relationship that looks good is or a relationship that pictures well or shows up nicely in a video but people, unfortunately, because of this, are pushed to strive for that. They want a relationship that looks cute, that looks good. They might even think when they start to date someone, how is this going to look on social media when we post a picture or video together? We're more focused on what other people think and feel about our relationship than we, what we actually think and feel on our relationship. So something I said um, yesterday during the question and answer is that people would rather have a relationship that looks good on Instagram than a relationship that feels good in their heart. We would rather have a relationship that people are going to like and comment, maybe we aren't even happy in, rather than one that actually is good and strong and healthy. Because a good, strong, healthy relationship can't really show up. You can't tell the difference between a healthy relationship and an unhealthy relationship on Instagram. Usually, maybe sometimes, again, people will post something, but those real signs that are important won't show up 
and just some post that people put. Um, you know, sometimes you'll hear people see that a couple is broken up and they said, wow, I'm so surprised they broke up because they looked so happy. And what do they mean by that? They're talking about looking at their pictures on Facebook or Instagram where they're smiling and hugging each other and traveling and doing all sorts of cute things. And so that tells us, oh, they must be so happy. They must be doing so well. But as I like to joke, people don't post pictures of themselves in the middle of a fight or they don't even take those pictures to begin with. So you're not going to see the negatives or the, the issues in the relationship. You're just going to see the positive points and not just the positive points, the exaggerated positive points and airbrushed and uh, photoshopped and filters and all those kinds of things to make it look even better. And also they try to just make the picture look as good as they can or look as happy as they can to get that perfect image to post online. And so this is another reminder that when you look at someone and you think, gosh, they're so lucky to be with him or to be with her um, or to be in that relationship, that we never really know what it's like to be in someone's shoes and we never really know what it's like to be in someone's relationship or to be in a relationship with someone. So going back to the in someone's shoes, a lot of times we look at someone and think, oh, I wish I was him or I wish I was her because they look good or they have a life we think we would want or if we had that we think we'd be happy, but we don't know what they are going through. And this is no better illustrated than when we think about all the very successful and famous and talented and beautiful people who were depressed and anxious and all sorts of things and had unfortunately drug addictions and maybe even took their own lives. So people that most people would think, I wish I had their life, I wish I was them, we don't know that they're actually suffering very strongly inside, that they're not feeling good and they're not happy. So we shouldn't think, I wish I was them. And similarly, we might think, I wish I was that person's boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife. Of course, if we like someone, we can approach them and try to start a relationship, but we never know what it's actually like to be with someone. Uh, a lot of times people that are very charismatic that look really good. If you go to a party, they might dress nice, look nice, and they know how to act around people, say the right things, make people like them, laugh, be polite to people in the ways that makes them like them. And people think, oh gosh, she's so lucky to be with him or he's so lucky to be with her. But we don't know what kind of person that that individual is in a relationship behind closed doors. Very often, I don't want to say very often, but at times it can happen that people who are that way, very good at being charismatic, it's because they want to look good in person or in public. But when it comes to having a personal relationship, they might be very mean and unhappy and uh, a bad partner. They'd rather look good than actually have the reality of a good relationship. So if you have that feeling, oh, I wish that was my husband or that was my wife or how lucky is he or she, remember that you don't really know what someone is like. I'm not saying assume that they're a bad person to their partner behind closed doors, but just remember, we don't really know. And so oftentimes people will get divorced and will find out she wanted a divorce or he wanted a divorce and we think, oh my God, what a, what an idiot. How stupid was he? How stupid was she to want to end that marriage? But we don't know what they're going through. We don't know what it's like. So even if the person on paper looks great, or even if the person, when you see them in public looks great, we have to remember that that doesn't mean anything. And similarly, we have to be aware that when we're trying to create our own relationships, let's try to create a relationship that doesn't look good on Instagram, but really focus on having a relationship that looks good and feels good within our hearts for our feelings and our thoughts. 
how we feel. Pick someone that makes you feel good rather than someone ju- that just makes you look good or looks good online. Even sometimes I, I talk about attraction. Of course, physical attraction is necessary to be in a romantic relationship. So I'm not trying to um, have some kind of cliche argument or make a statement that looks don't matter at all and you shouldn't care. You definitely have to feel physically and sexually attracted to your romantic partner in order to have a healthy relationship. You need to have that. So the problem isn't wanting to be attracted to your partner. And sometimes people like to go to that extreme of saying, it doesn't matter what someone looks like. It only matters um, who they are and how they act. And that sounds nice, but really we have to have that physical attraction to have the connection, to have what you need to have the spark for a romantic relationship. But it doesn't mean what unfortunately some people do, which is the other extreme, that that's the only thing they base their partner on. And so what I tell people is if you do that, if you pick someone just based on picking the best looking person, you'll have nice wedding photos, but you won't have a nice marriage. If that's the only reason, of course, they can have that. And if they have the personality and uh, treat you well, you can have both. But if you're basing it just on someone who looks good, all you're going to have is nice wedding photos, but not a nice marriage. And you should try to have it the other way around. Focus on having the good marriage rather than the nice wedding photos. But coming back to social media, we have to be aware of how much we get affected by trying to look a certain way online that we forget that what really matters is how we feel. And so even people will live their lives in this way. They'll go to events um, and they might not even be happy there, but they want to make sure people think they were having a good time. So they think they're having fun, they're happy, that they're cool and all those other things. So they'll take a picture and have a video where it looks like they're happy just to make it seem that way. I've even been in places and I've heard so many stories where people will say, you know, they were somewhere not having a good time, but someone will say, Hey, I'm going to take a video for Instagram. And then everyone starts acting like they're having fun and it's so funny. And they're having the time of their life to try to make other people jealous and envious of their life to make themselves look good. And so here again, we see that we're more focused on what other people think about us and what they feel about us than what we're actually thinking and what we're feeling and experiencing in our own lives. And so this is where, yes, social media can have a very negative effect on our lives if we get more focused on what the image is than what we actually feel we get more focused on how we're going to look rather than what we're going to experience and even with kids i love kids and babies and i can see baby pictures and baby videos all the time but sometimes even i don't like when i feel parents are putting so much attention and um, emphasis on trying to make their kids look cute to post a cute picture to get attention. I don't think it's bad to post cute pictures of your kids online, but sometimes you can get the feeling that parents are trying to do it because it makes them feel good to get that positive attention of, oh, your kid is so cute. You have the cutest kid. I wish I had your family. These kinds of comments and things that people say, again, I wish I had your family. You don't know what it's like to live in their shoes and live in their life, but just by looking at this picture, we think that's life and that's the good life. But Sometimes I think parents go a little too far in focusing on trying to make the kids look too cute. And sometimes I don't like that. You get this feeling that they're trying to turn their kids into models and um, emphasizing looks on them in such a young age, which I think is a problem. I think kids are cute enough as they are. We don't have to put all that effort into it. But I think sometimes it becomes this competition of 
who's got the cuter kids and let's try to show them off. And that to me is definitely not something good for yourself. And again, to start making your kid feel this way, that how they look is so important, that how they look is something good. And unfortunately, a lot of parents do this because they want the attention. It's not for the kid. Uh, a one-year-old doesn't care how many followers they have on Instagram, but their parents might. And that is something to really think about. And so to me, what as is the case with everything that we do, I always say you have to ask yourself, what is my intention? So I'm not saying social media is bad, or if you post a picture of your kid, that's bad. Or if you post a picture with your boyfriend, girlfriend, or husband, or wife, that's bad. Absolutely not. It depends on why you're doing it. Are you doing it because you want to share something with friends and families, family and loved ones, and you want them to see that, that's okay. But if you're trying to get envy out of people, if you're trying to make people feel like your life is better than it is, or people say, I want to post a picture to make the people who don't like me envious and mad, that's something you got to really think about. Am I living my life for them or for me? And social media, unfortunately, makes it a lot easier for us to live our lives for other people. But we have to counteract to that by trying to make sure we live our lives for ourselves. We can share our lives online if we'd like at times in different ways and in the right ways. But we want to make sure that we're not trying to live our life in a way that looks good online. We want to make sure we live a good life and try to create a good relationship, not focus on what that relationship uh, and life looks like to others. And that, I think, is something very important to keep in mind. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. Again, the book of the week for this week is Bruce Hood's book, Possessed, Why We Want More Than We Need, in some ways related to this social media topic. All right, you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful night. KTWV HD3 Los Angeles.